Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we talk about Scottish independence, the prospects for tax rises in the UK, and Bitcoin, with Nikki Eggers, Head of Investments, Olivia Gleeson, Senior UK Government Relations Expert, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. To find out about starting your investing journey with Barclays, visit barclays.co.uk forward slash investments. Hello, welcome to another edition of Word on the Street, our weekly attempt to make sense of the world from the perspective of long-term diversified investors and more on that in a a short while. This week, we're going to tackle Scottish independence, the upcoming UK budget and latest goings on in the US and maybe sprinkle in a bit of Bitcoin while we're at it. I'm very happy to say that we've got Olivia Gleeson, one of our resident government policy experts, to help Will and I work out what's going on. So, so let's start off with Scottish independence. It's very much in the news at the moment for a number of reasons. But Olivia, what's the feeling in number 10? What are you hearing down on the street, so to speak? What are the chances of a second referendum? Do we see that rising? So yes, I think I said in the first podcast of this new year that the question of Scottish independence would be very high on the government's agenda and potentially even a defining issue for Boris Johnson's administration. So if we sort of have a quick look at where we stand today, you know, Boris Johnson's government really do have their work cut out to them from here. Sort of over the last 12 months, polls have routinely found that pro-independence sentiment has exceeded 50%, which is quite concerning. Now, sort of the big news is that at the start of February, the SNP published their roadmap to independence, which asserts unequivocally that if a second referendum is not granted by Westminster, will be legislated for by Scottish Parliament. Now, of course, that's dependent on them securing a pro-independence majority at the upcoming elections in May, but that seems very likely. I should probably add a brief caveat here that, you know, as you'll be reading about, there is a conduct scandal currently embroiling the Scottish government that could thwart the SNP's plans, but actually it's not very clear that it's having much material impact on voting intentions. And it's sort of been seen as an issue for the Hollywood bubble, but not for the public. So I think it's fair to say we could assume an SNP landslide as our base case, um, in which case, you know, Sturgeon will then request another referendum from Westminster. And if refused, she'll sort of press ahead with legislating for one anyway. And what would happen at that point is that the UK government would essentially be forced to challenge any such move in the courts. Under the Scotland Act of 1998, it can challenge a bill on the grounds of legislative competence and it'll be kicked to the Supreme Court for ruling. I could probably spend a whole nother podcast speculating on the outcomes of that Supreme Court ruling. Um, But, you know, that's just one route. And there's a myriad of other ways the Scottish question could unfold. You know, it's not impossible the UK government might act now to try stop the constitutional question even getting to the Supreme Court. But, you know, either way, the UK government has to think pretty fast on its options here. And I think we should probably expect to see more of their strategy on this come to light in coming weeks and months. And one of the key issues last time I seem to remember was was apropos the currency. Have there, have there been any developments on that front? Mm, I think it's quite an interesting point to pick up on. I mean, I mean, we know more broadly the interplay of Scottish independence and, and Brexit's quite well recognised. 60% of Scottish voters, uh, remember, oppose leaving the EU. And it's very likely that lots of these voters will have shifted now in favour of Scottish independence, which naturally now includes proposals to rejoin the EU. But the currency question remains a bit of an ambiguity here. 
So the same polls that I mentioned that have found support for Scottish independence growing also show that some Scots would be less likely to vote for this if it meant replacing the pound. So there's clearly a level of discomfort Scots feel about forsaking sterling for the euro, despite their otherwise sort of pro-European sentiment. Now, an obligation of EU membership would sort of have to be a good faith commitment to join the euro. And it's very unlikely Scotland uh, would secure an opt out. So I guess the question becomes how much of a deal breaker is the currency question? Now, Scottish government and the UK government will be acutely aware of this. So the SNP will be doing lots of detailed thinking on a currency plan to reassure Scottish voters, while Boris Johnson's obviously going to be looking to exploit those fears as we edge closer to a possible uh, second referendum. And so assuming there is a referendum and those looking to exit the UK union win over, we're assuming that Scotland would then look to perhaps rejoin the EU. What what would that mean in practice, Will? So, you know, Scotland is a you know, an advanced democracy with a well-developed free market economy. So the feeling is that it should meet the uh, political and economic criteria quite comfortably. However, there would be quite a bit of work to do on the construction of the kind of state apparatus, which they would have to do anyway, of course. So, you know, central bank, competition agency, a comprehensive system of taxation and so on. So best guesses indicate that it would take, you know, four to five years to accede to the EU. So Finland took three years, but it was already an independent state and part of the European economic area. The so more broadly, the problem for the Scottish economy, as highlighted by this LSE paper that attracted quite a bit of attention recently, is that its kind of trading book is currently dominated by the rest of the UK. Uh, so in order for EU membership to be economically beneficial, the country will need to totally reorient its customer base or its external customer base uh, so that the lower costs of EU trade offset higher costs of UK trade that would come with uh, with a split, if you see what I mean. That could take some time uh, and I think, you know, could be an economically painful process. And so the potentially economic benefits of a, of a split would likely be quite a long way off. Uh, yeah, I mean, in truth, it's a pretty complicated, uh, you know, calculation. So much depends on negotiations and where the line is drawn in the national debt and North Sea. Uh, you know, so those advocating uh, independence will point to... You know, Norway and Denmark as good examples of what smaller nations can achieve in terms of kind of economic will, levels of economic well-being. Uh, but remember, and this is a point that crops up a lot on this uh, on this podcast, kind of copy pasting successful economic strategies is not as easy as it sounds. You know, the country's economic setting, its institutional context, its trading partnerships, uh, you know, they tend to be functions of centuries of political, economic, societal weather. So it's, you can't just change these things on a dime. And that sort of segues nicely into thinking about our upcoming budget. Olivia, we've discussed the UK and global government debt pile quite a lot on this podcast. Will Will and the asset allocation team are a little less worried about government debt levels, um, given the very low interest rates, if not um, potentially negative at some point, and, and the persistence of that. I'm assuming we're not going to see a dramatic tightening of purse strings just yet, but Do you have any sense of what this budget is going to look like? Sure. So, I mean, I should add the usual caveat that the budget's always a bit of a funny game of expectation management. You know, over the coming weeks, we see leaks and speculation of what it might include, what it might not include. And we should remember that very little is certain until the Chancellor actually stands up and delivers his statement. 
But, you know, I think your estimation is right that given the extraordinary circumstances in which the UK economy finds itself, we do think this budget is likely to actually include more spending, not less, in order to support the economy, particularly through a slow tapering away of, of restrictions. And the Chancellor will be acutely conscious of being seen to damage uh, what's a very fragile economy by pursuing any cuts too early in the recovery. So if we look at what it might include, uh, there's obviously wide reporting about an extension to the furlough or cor- coronavirus business loan support schemes. And both of those government support schemes are set due to end in April. But in light of new lockdown restrictions and the fact that, you know, social distancing measures might prevent some businesses from opening even after they're allowed to do so, uh, we do expect to see some form of extension here. You know, most likely the Chancellor might sort of phase out the support accompanied by sort of new plans or additional funding for certain jobs or, or areas of skills development. And sort of moving on to a slightly uh, juicier topic, you know, the issue of universal credit is certainly going to come up at this budget. You'll recall uh, the temporary uplift was introduced at the start of the pandemic, about a thousand worth about a thousand pounds, I think, uh, to each family is due to end in March. And, you know, that's costing the Treasury six billion pounds a year. And there really is no political consensus, even within government, on how to handle this one at the budget. But, you know, of course, government will be very keen to avoid any sort of Rashford style campaign uh, where they're accused of neglecting the poorest parts of society. So I'm sure lots of thought uh, going on behind the scenes into a creative fix on this one. So hopefully, you know, that provides a little bit of flavour, but I'll, I'll certainly be able to provide more detail as we get closer to the big day. Sure. And, and, and thinking to sort of further future budgets, do you, do you have a sense of where the priorities might lie in, in terms of revenue raises? I mean, clearly, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people listening to this podcast might be thinking about, you know, likely higher taxes, etc. Is, is that something that you can give us a little steer on? Sure. I mean, I wonder when you say thinking uh, about higher taxes or worried uh, about <laughs> higher taxes, uh, perhaps. But, you know, yeah. So while this budget will likely focus on spending, I think the Chancellor will probably still want to signal the need for consolidation in the near future to try claw back some of the COVID-19 uh, deficit. Now, from everything we know about Rishi Sunak as a Chancellor, we're led to believe he probably will look at conventional fiscal levers as opposed to some Uh, more out there wealth based measures that could be leveraged. So if we start with corporation tax, um, for example, you'd recall that uh, the Chancellor, former Chancellor George Osborne cut corporation tax from 28% to 19%. But there's actually quite a lot of wiggle room for this government to to increase it again, up to about 23% would still be below the average headline of OECD countries. We also know that the Treasury will probably move on capital gains tax. You know, you remember there was a review in autumn which recommended cutting annual capital gains tax allowance and allying it more closely with income tax. You know, apparently that could raise about £14 billion a year for the Exchequer, so not, not small change. And I guess briefly worth covering some of the newer ideas coming out of the Treasury to raise revenues. We've been reading in recent weeks about a possible online sales tax, also dubbed as the Amazon tax which could essentially apply a surcharge on all goods bought online in the UK. Obviously, there is still some ambiguity about when revenue raises could be announced. Maybe the Treasury is planning for a second budget in the autumn when recovery is more fully underway. So we might find out more then. But, you know, until then, we are keeping a watching brief. And Will, I mean, higher taxes, what, what might that mean for, for UK economic growth? What, what, what do you think that means for our forecasts? 
Well, I mean, the answer from history, Nikki, is quite surprising, actually, to be honest. I mean, it tells us that even big changes in marginal tax rates have almost no bearing on the trend growth rate of the um, the economy. Now, you know, of course, such changes can influence the shorter term picture. But there's plenty of evidence to show that the trend doesn't budge. A lot of the studies have looked at the US, but you can also look at the UK's, you know, mostly very, very stable post-war trend through a variety of different tax regimes. We can't leave this podcast without talking about the US, right? Um, the, the papers have obviously been been filled with the impeachment trial in the Senate. But I guess from an investment standpoint, the interest level is probably a bit more about the next round of, of stimulus measures. How are things looking there? Yes. Uh, yes, Nikki, it's hard to have a, a, a podcast at the moment without mentioning the US. And on on, on the sort of uh, the, the the package coming. So the White House and congressional Democrats have been using uh, what people are describing as a dual track approach to getting it done. The president has remained open to negotiating with a group of uh, Senate Republicans. But at the same time, the party has been moving forward on getting this uh, this aid done by using uh, something called budget reconciliation. It's a legislative tactic that essentially means they can get it through on um, simple majority, which is, you know, as you know, is, is now possible given the, the political hue of the Senate. We have talked about that before, so I won't go into it again. Now, in terms of estimations of the size of the package, it ranges between kind of one and two trillion, so quite wide range of estimates. But I think the interesting thing about it for, for investors is more about how this stimulus is targeted. Now, forgive me, I'm going to do several sort of major simplifications and generalizations, but unusually, yeah, I was going to say unusually for me, but (laughs) the point is, uh, you know, I think is valid, even though the, the argument is potentially a little bit dirty. So like I say, forgive me a little bit, but if you think about, you know, much of the state support in the aftermath of the last crisis, it was focused on kind of financial stability. Now, I'm always a bit wary, or we should always be a bit wary of making this link too directly, but many have associated, you know, the stimulus that went into maintaining a stable financial sector to the boom, uh, boom in asset prices that also happened during the, the last economic cycle. Now, Obviously, this boom in in capital markets assets disproportionately benefited the rich. So uh, generally, the top income sections of society own more capital markets assets as a proportion of their savings. Now, you know, this is something that we are trying hard to change, among others, by kind of democratizing access to investments in the words of our, uh, you know, our CEO, Dirk Lee. Um, Now, anyway... One of the big arguments against inequality is that there, you know, that it, it basically has a deadening effect on economic growth because higher income brackets tend to save much more of their post-tax income uh, mm. than lower income equivalent households, basically because they can. So the resources you channel, the more resources you channel to the top, the more economic gunpowder is essentially squirreled away. Now, there is a bit of a debate about how much inequality you need before this becomes noticeable at the economic growth level and so on, but that's not for now. Um, like I, I would recommend anyone who is interested in this debate and the actual statistics on it, have a look at the Peterson Institute website. There's a very good, what's it called, a separate website underneath that that, uh, that uh, focuses purely on inequality and some of the sort of statistics on it. Anyway, this package that we're talking about here that's coming in the US is very much targeting lower income households. So, you know, you've got the potential for uh, minimum wage changes, although there's a little bit of debate around this at the moment, child tax credit boosts for the mid to lower income households and so on and so on. Now, the point here for investors is that, like I say, lower income households not only spend much more of this state gift 
uh, proportionally than the higher income brackets, but also that lower income consumption tends to be a lot more commodity intensive. Um, it is more focused on goods consumption uh, versus or tends to be versus the services that uh, tend to dominate the higher income consumption baskets. Now, this is one of the arguments, uh, short term arguments, doing the rounds for diversified commodities investment as it goes at the moment. That's an asset class, as you know, that we've just increased, uh, added to substantially in our diversified portfolio in our strategic asset allocation. You will have heard JP and co talk about that uh, in detail for very different reasons as it goes. We did our addition, but um, I thought interesting context all the same. Interesting. Yeah. And, and presumably could well feed into that inflation outlook that we're you know, sort of forever considering. And and I guess one of the other areas that we've touched on in the podcast, and of course, you know, people are, people are talking about all over social media and elsewhere, it, the amazing moves we've seen in Bitcoin and, and other cryptocurrencies. I know, you know, you guys have said before, we happily remain on the sidelines for now and, and let others have the fun until the music stops. But, but you know, tell me, well, are you starting to get tempted here? Well, I mean, I have to admit, they, they are having quite a lot of fun at the moment, Nikki. Looking at the price returns that you saw over uh, over 2020 for a start. But, and, and I think just, just as a sort of, as a clarification, I guess, that I think the point to make is that this is primarily a Bitcoin story. So I think 97% of all inflows into crypto assets uh, in 2020 went into Bitcoin. Now, Interestingly, the other thing that I was reading about the other day was that most Bitcoin price appreciation uh, in 2020 was actually during US trading hours, unlike 2017, uh, when it was much more Asia focused. Now, as you know, from our perspective, there are still several problems. Uh, One of them is the sheer volatility, you know, the amount, the price fluctuates. This is a white knuckle ride, even when put against other kind of capital markets roller coasters. There are also ESG considerations, given the energy consumption that comes with Bitcoin, as well as a substantial political risk, to be honest. Uh, and personally, I'm still unsure of how to value it, you know, how to gauge expected returns. It doesn't have cash flow or coupons to get your teeth into from a valuation perspective. And at the moment, sort of, you know, many of the arguments seem to rest on the you know greater fool theory. Uh, you know, my return is driven by finding someone uh, stupid enough to sell it to at a higher price. But, you know, that's, that's you know, in time, uh, we may see a more robust thesis emerge and we continue to, to to watch very closely. But for the moment, we'll continue to watch with some trepidation, quite a lot of admiration, um, but from the sidelines. Yeah. And, and I guess, you know, the, the context here is is the job that we see ourselves here to do, which which is around, you know, that that well used phrase, it's a it's a get rich slow scheme, the business that we're in. It's it's around that less volatile, diversified investing, not looking to make fortunes overnight, but rather to protect and enhance our our clients and customers' wealth through, you know, perseverance and uh, longer longer term investing and, and perhaps we should and do you know stay on the sidelines as as our cio is a, a self prescribed buzzkill <laughs> it's reflective of of our of our investing mindset but i want to thank you for for giving us those insights will and especially also to our guest olivia thank you so much for for giving us the the word on the street from Downing Street and and beyond. So thank you for that. And for anyone that does want to 
learn a little bit more about how we provide uh, investment solutions, do please go to our website. It's barclays.co.uk forward slash investments. There's all sorts of information there. So worth a quick look. Speak to you next week. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.